podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a very accomplished chess professional joining us this week, although, of course, he's worked in other professions as well. He's had his hands in many professional activities over the years. He is a chess grandmaster. In the 1980s, he was the top-ranked non-Japanese shogi player in the world. He is a graduate of MIT. Uh, He's very active with chess and computers. He worked on Ribka, which at the time was the world's strongest chess engine in 2007 and 2008. Um, He's currently a partner in Komodo Chess. Um, He won the World World Senior Chess Championship. Um, And his son, Raymond, is also an IM, just for good measure. And last but not least, he is a... Um, well-regarded chess author who is out with a new book uh, called Kaufman's New Repertoire for Black. It's now available on Forward Chess, and it's coming to the U.S. as a physical book on December 31st, 2019. I've had a chance to check it out, so of course we'll be talking about it. But without further ado, uh, Grandmaster Larry Kaufman, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Had to give you a lengthy introduction there, Larry, because you've you've done so much in the chess world. I mean, I know, I know you've you've had encounters with many chess legends. You're a writer. You've done incredible work with chess computers. So it's 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 a real treat to speak with you. Well, nice to nice to be here. Uh, one little correction: when you get when you read the title of the book, you said for black, but it's black and white. Oh yeah, and I have the right title staring me right in the face. So, so <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, okay. and, I, and of course, I I read I read through the book and looked at all the recommended lines, and, and I'm excited to try out some of the white ones. Um, I don't think uh, I do want to start off by talking about the book. Um, so I feel like the the best place to begin, actually, um, we had another chess opening author as our guest uh, the prior week. Um, who you mentioned in your introduction, uh, I am Christoph Zelecki, uh, who I, I know you were at least familiar with, With um, I think it was Keep It Simple E4, you had looked at um, in conjunction with, with working on your material. Um, and yesterday, in what will be last week's episode for listeners, we were talking about how chess computers work. And one thing that, that we talked about was the Monte Carlo method, which I know you, you mentioned briefly in the introduction, but I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to sort of begin by explaining the methodology of, the, of how you use computers to help you find uh, good opening lines. Um, specifically, you're talking about how I use the, the Monte Carlo programs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, for, first point is there's a lot of confusion among people uh, about Monte Carlo engines and neural network. Some people uh, think of it as if they were two names for the same thing, but they're two different things, which may or may not be in the same engine. Uh, I can go into that more anytime you want me to, but uh, for now, let's just say that the, the Monte Carlo, what's called Monte Carlo Tree Search, MCTS, uh, is, a, is a way of looking at the moves 
uh, where instead of trying to figure out what is the perfect move in some theoretical sense, uh, you're just trying different things and and gathering some statistics to see which move is likely to work best given sensible play for both sides. So it's it's a somewhat different premise. Uh, so the Monte Carlo uh, tree search approach is more uh, relevant to what I would say over the board chess, whereas maybe the the standard what we call alpha beta engines are perhaps more relevant for correspondence chess. Okay. In, in, in correspondence chess, you're at least trying to find the absolute truth. You're trying to to see what is really the best move, but in an over-the-board game with a limited time, you want the best practical chances, and that's pretty much the idea of Monte Carlo tree search programs, to find the move that gives the best practical chances against good opposition. But it's against another it's against another computer opposition in terms of when the programming it's it's basically doing iterations playing against itself. Is that right? Um Yes, it was, it's yeah. It's not it's not playing entire games. It's it, but it's playing out uh, different sequences against itself and gathering statistics. And uh, so yeah, you're you're correct in that sense that it's not it doesn't have a human inside to play against. It only has a simulated human. But still, it, it's it's gather, it's trying to figure out what will work best against a range of plausible moves rather than what will work best just against the move that it happens to believe that is the other side would play. Oh, okay. That's, that's a helpful explanation. Thank you. And obviously uh, we'll have listeners who are very well versed in how chess engines work and those, those that are not. Um, so I know the, so which engines did you use primarily to, to help you dig through the opening theory for Kaufman's new repertoire for black and white? Well, the the two that use Monte Carlo tree search, which was the basis of the the book, uh, I, I use LC zero, which is Monte Carlo and neural network, and then I use the Monte Carlo version of Komodo, which is not neural network, or at least not now, but it's Monte Carlo plus Komodo. So. Uh, then I, I referred to analysis of, of conventional engines, but 90% of, of the book basically was based on the, on the results of, of uh, LC0 plus Komodo Monte Carlo. Okay, and LC0 is Leela, correct? Yes. Okay, just, just making sure. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book that you, you primarily uh, view your role as sort of a referee. That's right, because... I mean, but these engines are playing at somewhere around 3,500 ELO levels. So it's in, in normal circumstances, it's not very likely that my opinion is going to be superior to either one of the engines, except in cases where I happen to know that they're wrong, you know, like maybe some end game where it's actually possible to say this is a draw or this is a win or or, for example, some very, very blocked position where I, I might be able to judge that there's just no way that anyone's going to win the game, even though one side is obviously better. But 
uh, aside from those special cases, it's usually not a, not a good idea to overturn the opinion of one of the engines in favor of my own opinion. But when the two engines don't agree with each other, which happens all the time, then we need a way to decide who to go with. And, and that's what my main role was, is to, is to choose which move to recommend when the two engines don't agree. Okay. And, and there are plenty of cases like that. That happens very, very many times. And just to give some perspective, I mean, the, the number 3,500 as a rating is just so shocking. But uh, Jeremy Kane, friend of the podcast who put us in touch, uh, shout out to Jeremy. He, I was emailing with him a little bit, and he, he mentioned, and I know you talk about this a little in the book as well, but so, so a, a program like uh, L0 or Komodo, um, at that level, it could give a 23, 2400 player a piece odds, basically. Is that about right? Well, we we that wasn't that wasn't uh, true until fairly recently. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were we were never successful in giving night odds to any any kind of chess master except in blitz. But that's changed, uh, and now we had we've had two two uh, matches uh, recently where Komodo Monte Carlo uh, played. Uh, rapid chess as opposed to blitz chess um, against masters at night odds. Uh, the first match was uh, against uh, a, a real, real veteran master, uh, Larry Gilden, who's uh, he's 77 years old, but he still he, he spends his main thing in life is playing rated chess. So he's he's a real. I mean, he has a a USCF master rating, but he deserves it. I mean, he's not like the typical old master that plays like an 1800 player. <laughs> he, he actually maintains a master rating, um, and he is an FM from a long time ago. And so we played a six-game match with him uh, at night odds at 15-minute plus 10-second time control, and uh, with the kind of a total shock, but somehow or other, Komodo won all six games. Jeez, oh my goodness. Nobody uh, nobody could have even imagined that result. I, I still don't quite know how it happened. But, and then, and then uh, a couple of weeks later, we, we played the, the aforementioned Jeremy Kane. Uh, we just played him two games at a somewhat faster time control, uh, 15, uh, 10 plus 5, I think um, yeah, 10 plus 5 uh, at night odds, and those were both draws. But Jeremy's a, a stronger master than Larry Gilden now. Jeremy's particularly good in uh, in blitz chess. So, yeah, uh, he plays a lot of blitz. So <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but that's just shocking, and I'm sure there's some, some chess masters listening going, well, they might be able to give them odds, but they couldn't give me odds. But, <laughs> but I don't know. It could definitely give me odds because I've always found it hard to play against computers to begin with. But then, the, I mean, again, just how strong these computers are just boggles the mind, uh, and it's amazing the insights they're able to provide into openings, which I want to dig into that a little bit. But first, uh, you mentioned also in the book the type of computer that you bought. Uh, could you could you go into that a little bit for our listeners, like what, what kind of computer you were running these engines on? Yes. Um, okay, so you have to uh, make the point that there's a big distinction between the CPU and the GPU. 
the CPU is, is what every, runs every computer. Uh, it's the, we call it the brain of the computer. Uh, the GPU is the graphics processor. And you don't even have to have a GPU uh, in general to run a computer. So uh, all of the normal chess computers uh, prior to the last uh, year or two uh, only use the CPU. They, they didn't, if you had a GPU, it was not even access, uh, you know, except for the part of the, the, the graphics, maybe it might make their, make your uh, screen prettier, but that's, we're not talking about that now. Uh, so the, uh, the new ones, uh, such as LC0, and uh, another one now is uh, Fat Fritz, uh, the the ones that they call neural network engines do use the GPU, G, GPU, and not only do they use a GPU, but they you can you can say they almost require a GPU. I mean, they will run without it, but if you don't have a GPU, there's not a whole lot of point to getting a neural network engine because they're not nearly as strong as the top CPU engines if you if you're running them only on a CPU. So. With that explained, uh, the computer that I got uh, has uh, eight CPU cores running at the, uh, close to five gigahertz, which is about as fast as you can get. So it's a very strong uh, computer to start with. But what was particularly important for running LC0 is it had a, an extremely powerful GPU uh, called the RTX 2080, uh, which has actually something like 3,000 cores itself, which sounds almost ridiculous, but uh, that's <laughs> that's uh, the way it is. And so, with with that super powerful GPU, it makes a neural network program such as LC0 extremely strong. Uh, in fact, I, I would say on my my computer it makes uh, LCZU stronger than than any regular engine, even stronger than Komodo and Stockfish. Uh, so, in general, with the kind of computer I use for this, LC0 would be the strongest uh, available engine. But that doesn't mean that it's always right. Right. So there, there, there are yeah. plenty of situations where uh, the GPU does a better job, and that's where my referee status becomes important. Huh. Okay. Referee and translator, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to give us a, a little pers perspective, because um, not everyone will be uh, that well-versed in how computers, uh, like how they work. So how much does a computer like that cost? Uh, this computer costs $3,000. Okay. That's about what I would have guessed. Not, not uh, like Fabiano's fabled $10,000 machine. Well, that was a couple years ago. So who knows what he has now, but, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that, that makes sense. I mean, with how, how fast processors have sped up over time, you don't, I mean, obviously that's a lot of money, but it's not like, you know, yeah, it's not a fortune. Yeah, yeah, you're not buying a car or anything, or at least not a new, no, I, not I, a new car. I actually have more expensive computers even than that one, but 
they don't have the they're more expensive because they have larger number of CPUs, but they don't have the GPU. Yeah. Okay. Um, and to transition sort of to the actual openings, um, I thought that, you know, I don't feel like we should go too much into specific variations being that this is an audio only interview, but you did have some sort of, uh, some broad conclusions that I thought might be interesting to hear a little bit more about. So number one, this kind of surprised me a little bit as you say that overall in, in the analysis you did with engines, white is doing pretty well. Yes. Uh, especially with, with, uh, with Lila, with LC zero, at least, Leela seems to think white is always a lot better. <laughs> huh. And what would, if we translate it into the, I know that, like, for example, AlphaZero has its own uh, conversion method in terms of uh, describing an advantage. But what what would we, what would you describe as a typical advantage? What what fraction of a pawn is white getting? Well, okay. I mean, we, you, have to, you have to uh, be very clear on that. The, uh, with Komodo, we we do it about right in the sense that if we say that we're up one, it it pretty much means that we're up the equivalent of a of a uh, uncompensated pawn in a normal position. I mean, it it means what it should mean. Um, but with with LC zero, that's not always true. They keep changing the way they do it, and uh, I think the current application it it's it really it just isn't right. I mean, they, they it, their typical score for a position where where you're up a pawn for no compensation is is closer to two pawns. Huh. So it, it just doesn't have the the meaning that it's supposed to have. I don't really know why they do that. They could, they could just divide by two, and it would be <laughs> a lot more sensible. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what they do. So the typical white advantage uh, with with Komodo is approximately 0.20. Okay. Uh, so with LC0, it's typically going to say something like 0.40, but in reality, that's, you know, that's, that's only 0.20. Okay. They should divide by two. But, um, it, but it, it is generally true that LC0 will report a, a favorable score a lot more often than than a normal engine, even including Komodo MCTS. I mean, there are a lot of positions where where it, Komodo will say that it's heading toward a draw and it's, the score is 0.01 or something like that, and and LC0 will still be showing a score like 0.15 or thereabouts. Okay, and is there, like, in your in your mind, is there a clear differentiation point where it's headed headed for a draw versus when it wouldn't be? Well, I mean, it depends on what stage of the game you're in. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're in the opening, point twenty means white has a normal edge. You can't really, you know, you, that which means that he isn't anywhere near winning yet, but uh, you're not about to agree to a draw either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're late in the game, then uh, I, I think the typical threshold that is on the Komodo scale I, my best estimate is that the the dividing line between a win and a draw is about 0. 0.7. Oh, funny! Hikaru Nakamura gave the exact same number when I interviewed him a couple years back. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Okay. That, that, that's 
funny how that works but um okay so th- yeah that that's interesting and and uh again without going into too much detail about specific variations i was uh mildly surprised after seeing that alpha zero was um was primarily a d4 player that that you went you can you went with a one e4 as the recommended repertoire so were you finding that white was getting better positions with e4 yes i mean the the problem First of all, it, it was uh, a positive thing, a reason for choosing e4, and, and also a, a negative against playing d4. Uh, with with d4, it, it's very hard to prove much of an edge against an Nimzo Indian. Huh, of course, black doesn't have to play. You know, black can play. I mean, sorry, white, white. can play knight f3 to avoid the Nimzo Indian. Uh, and then we, you know, then we can get into a big discussion of what Black's best option at, at that point is. But overall, I would say that uh, Black has uh, is coming pretty coming closer to equality uh, with that approach, or with the Gruenfeld approach, which is what I give in the book. Those those two approaches both seem to make it very hard to prove more than a token edge for white. Okay. But then for white, I, uh, there were some positive reasons for recommending E4. Uh, I mean, some uh, some variations that previously looked too equal um, started to look not quite so equal anymore. <laughs> okay. And I was heartened to see that it's not, you know, Given that the top players are are obviously at the vanguard of uh, exploring opening theory, um, digging into this book, I was sort of um, I was expecting a lot of main lines, and there there are some main lines, like of course the Spanish and the Roy Lopez and the aforementioned Grunfeld, but you managed to find a lot of uh, sidelines or, or less um, less um, less trodden territory where white can still fight for an edge or black can still fight for equality. But at least until this book uh, gets digested by the pop, the chess population, uh, you won't necessarily need to learn twenty five moves of theory. Um, d- do you think that's a that's a fair assessment? Yes, I mean that that was always part of my motivation for uh, writing repertoire books. That um, I recognize, even though I maybe not now as it, now that I'm an old man, my memory isn't so great, but when I was younger, I had a very good memory, and, and even so, it was hard to remember all the theory of, of all the complex lines if you wanted to play the most mainstream variation of everything. I mean, it's just so much to to recall. So I, I was always uh, had the attitude that if, if I could play a sideline that was still almost as good as the main line, but would require only a quarter or less of the of the theory, uh, I would go for that. So I was I was always looking for sidelines that that were more than just that had more than just surprise value to them. You're speaking my language, Larry. I love to hear it as <laughs> <laughs> as a working dad. To me, I, that's a that's a good good to hear. Um, so one other broad conclusion that I thought we could touch on, and then we have a, a listener question. Uh, also related to this book. Um, but you also had the conclusion that space is in, uh, meaning that the engines really don't like to give up space. Could you could you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, that's, that's been a, a trend uh, with 
with the regular engines, but perhaps more so even with the Monte Carlo engines uh, that and the neural network that uh, they uh, they seem to believe that space is in general valuable. The the typical attitude of, of grandmasters or, or chess authors in the past has been something, I'm simplifying it, but something like this, that space is very important if, if all the pieces are on the board, but if you trade off a couple of pieces, you don't need space that much. It's not that big a deal to have less space if you, you know, as long as you don't have so many pieces that you can't find room for all of them. So that that was sort of the typical attitude, but the computers have seemed to believe that space remains important even after some a couple of pieces have been traded. And okay. That, that's that's a difference, I would say. Okay, and obviously that's gonna that's gonna affect what openings uh, the engine favors greatly. So, right. Um, yeah, I I also when I interviewed Jan Gustafsson, a noted opening expert. Um, you know, worked on Team Carlson. He he also he. I asked him why no one was playing the French, and he said these guys don't like to give up space. So, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know uh, to what extent. I mean, I guess it's just uh, chess players generally getting a little bit closer to to a truth um, about chess. Uh, so, do you happen to know offhand? Like, so I mean, I I know you recommend the Tarash against the the French. Um, so because because you're giving up more space in an opening like the French or the Caro or the Pierce or whatever it may be, um, do, what kind of advantage would White get in that as opposed to to double king pawn or the Berlin, I mean the Berlin and regular classical double king pawn uh, and Grunfeld and openings like that? Well, of course, uh, advantages in chess are exchangeable. I mean, a lot of times you, you'll have one type of advantage and you'll trade it for another type of advantage. So uh, you might, you might, for example, be setting out with the idea of getting a space advantage, but in, instead what may happen is uh, the opponent will give up the bishop pair in order to, to claim an equal amount of space. So now you have the bishop pair advantage instead. So these, these things are always transforming. But, uh, I mean, just to talk in general, of course, the, the, the Caracan and French are much more likely to lead to space advantage for white. Uh, with with double king pawn, you tend to get a little bit more, um, uh, more tangible advantages, like you'll often get a, uh, maybe a little better pawn structure. You know, where a lot of times uh, black will end up with double pawns or with... Uh, some uh, some weak squares in his pawn structure. So in, in black black may be claiming equality in space, but he'll pay, be paying a price in in pawn structure or in or in having to give up the bishop pair. Okay, yeah, something that, like that. That makes sense. Um, okay, so let's move on to our first question from a supporter of the podcast and a guest of the podcast, friend of the podcast, uh, Han Shu. Uh, wrote in with a few questions, um, one of which we've we've touched on uh, a little bit, but uh, Han phrases it differently. So we'll start with this one, and he's got a few questions lined up, so we'll just take them one by one. Um, number one, Larry, he says, um, Han says, uh, what does Larry see as the relative strengths of the top engines? Stockfish, LCO, Komodo, Komodo, uh, Monte Carlo, Houdini. Does he have a recommendation on when to use which engine? 
Well, okay. So first of all, uh, the the neural network engine, which is basically is LC0, and, and now you can include Fat Fritz, which just came out a few days ago. Um, the neural network engines are uh, generally very good at at um, making moves that are uh, that look like the, what a, what a super grandmaster might play. They 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 tend to be good chess moves in in terms of human thinking. Uh, their their weak point is when you have to have a one exact variation, like you have to play 20, 20 perfect moves for both sides, and that based on that variation, that determines what the right initial move is. In situations like that, you're better off with with the conventional engines, you know, Komodo and and Stockfish, for example. Uh, but if you're in a situation where that's not likely to be the case, where it's not really going to, you know, going to come down to an exact detailed 20-move deep variation or even 10-move deep variation, that's where the neural network uh, engines are uh, shine. And then the, the the advantage of using Komodo and Monte Carlo is that it's kind of a, a hybrid. It, it combines more of the strength of the conventional engines with some of the strength of the neural network engines because the neural network engines all are also using Monte Carlo tree search. Okay. And, and, and you say that Leela is, is overall the strongest, but we're only talking about, uh, I mean, the rating difference would be what, less than a hundred points. Yes. Yeah. That's even, yeah. even if you're comparing it to stockfish or yeah. 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 Well, I mean, of course it depends on the hardware. I right. Mean, you know, I mean, Stockfish, I think, is still coming out ahead of Leela in a lot of tournaments because Stockfish may be running on 48 uh, cores or 90, 90 threads or some huge number like that. I was talking about on a machine that a person might actually have in its own. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably more more useful. Right. Uh, um, okay, thank you. And uh, Hans, next question is, um, do you plan to make the book available on the Chessable platform? I don't know if you're familiar with Chessable. I could explain it a bit if need be. Well, basically, I, I mean, uh, I would make it available anywhere that, that uh, my publisher knew in chess. Uh, if, if they if they want to do it, I'll, I'll, I'll you're be in. You know, okay. all for it. But uh, got to get their approval. Great. Yeah. And they do have some books on Chessable, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, that would be that would be great. And. Um, that, that reminds me, so you decided, it seemed like you made a, you made a decision. I mean, obviously it's, it's a full repertoire you're providing, you're providing for both, both colors. So that's, that's ambitious. Um, did you have any inkling to sort of go deeper on certain lines, uh, at the, um, at the cost of not analyzing as many openings or did you, did, were you committed to the idea of doing a full repertoire? Because obviously you can't. You can't go 30 moves of theory deep in every single opening unless it's one of those 800-page books like the old school MCO and Baffert's and stuff. Right. I mean, it, well, I, it, I committed to doing a, a full repertoire, but that doesn't mean that I uh, tried to cover every obscure move that the other side might make. I, I, I just I have to cover everything, at, at least at the in the early stages of I have to cover every 
reasonably plausible move in the first move or two for, for the other side. But uh, I, this, I, I made the point in the book that I did make a trade-off of uh, less coverage of obscure moves for the opponent at, and in return being able to give alternatives for my side because I, I don't want the book to be obsolete just because one yeah. of my ideas is ruined. Yeah, that would, that's a nice feature. Um, uh, yeah, and and I guess another way of sort of um, getting at a similar question would be, do you, I mean, obviously this is a, a large scope project. I'm sure it's kept you pretty busy, um, but do you have any plans of writing, like would you go more granular on a specific opening and write a follow-up about any of the recommended lines? Or um, well, I did that one time. I, I, I did I did do a separate book on the F three versus the Grunfeld. Uh huh. Um, I don't know if I would do it again. I'm I'm more constrained by uh, time these days. I I spend the majority of my working time on on Komodo and re- related matters. So my time for writing books is somewhat limited. But that makes sense. Yeah, and that actually uh, segues into Han's, uh, the third part of his question, uh, which is, and Han said, part of the reason he had so many questions was just you're such an interesting guest. Um, And Han asks, uh, Komodo was sold to chess.com. How's that impacting the future of Komodo? Okay, well, that's uh, kind of an oversimplification of what happened. uh, Komodo wasn't just outright sold to chess.com, but chess.com bought uh, a, a partnership in Komodo uh, along with the rights to use all of, of the Komodo software in their bots and apps. So we, we work closely together, but we're, we're not, we're not the same. We're not just totally merged. I mean, we, r- we run Komodo independently. Uh, we come out with our new versions and do our own testing and everything, but we cooperate a lot. Uh, chess.com does, help us in a couple of ways. They, they uh, uh, supply some of the hardware that we use for testing, and they uh, let us uh, borrow some of their uh, skilled personnel for special projects. Uh, we have uh, one of their guys has been helping us um, uh, try to make a neural network uh, version of Komodo, which it is they're not quite ready for prime time yet, but uh, I'm optimistic on that. And uh, so they, they, they help us in, in various uh, projects, uh, and we in turn supply them with uh, special versions for their needs, such as they, they recently uh, put Komodo versions that, that have all, all these different personalities, because chess, chess.com is, is aimed a lot at more... Um, typical amateur level players, you know, more, their average rating is something like twelve hundred. So they have they they have a lot of uh, interest in in having bots that just play uh, like different personalities and and things like that. So we help them with that, and then we also uh, have shows where where uh, they have Komodo play against some. Usually it's a grandmaster uh, with some some sort of handicaps. We've had a whole bunch of those handicap matches. But we work very closely together, but 
uh, and there, it, we definitely both benefit from the arrangement. Okay, sounds good. Guys, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about an opportunity to buy a rare chess collectible that I think is pretty cool. It's a limited edition set of four coffee mugs that feature hand-drawn portraits of all 16 undisputed world chess champions. It's hard to do these mugs justice on a podcast, but I'm going to try. The mugs are hand-drawn by a professional artist, and each mug features four of the world champions on it. Each world champion is pictured in front of a chessboard with one of their most famous positions set up. My favorite of the mugs is the one featuring Fisher, Spassky, Karpov, and Petrosian. These mugs were commissioned by a chess fan and listener of Perpetual Chess, and he assures me that only 125 sets of chess mugs were made, and there aren't going to be any more of them. I'm glad I got mine. They're large porcelain mugs that are dishwasher safe. The cost for the set of the four mugs would normally be $72 plus shipping, but if you use the code PERPETUALCHESS at checkout, you can save 15% on your order. Once again, the site is chessmugs.com, C-H-E-S-S-M-U-G-S.com, and the code is Perpetual Chess. And if you didn't write it down now, it's in the show notes as always, but now it's back to the show. So switching topics, Larry, we've got, again, so much to cover with your um, accomplished career. Um, I, I was checking out your USCF page, and I was glad to see that, that you're still competing pretty regularly. Um and I, I feel like you might have some unique perspective. Um, we we did talk about chess improvement a lot um, over uh, on this podcast, and uh, I know that that you had a peak rating at age fifty. So, uh, we interview a lot of adult players about ways to get to get better. Um, so, what has your experience been on working on chess as one continues to get older, as as we all do? Um, so, how how has your game progressed over the decades? How were you able to how were you able to get uh, a peak rating at age 50? And, and what has transpired in uh, subsequent decades? Well, uh, hey, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I did it. My first, uh, my first peak in chess happened at the age of, uh, of 32. That's when I initially got the IM title. Um, so it, it Relative to the standards of the time, that I was that was when I was at my strongest. But in in absolute terms, I I think it probably is correct to say that that my strength my peak was right close to my fiftieth birthday. I reached a USCF rating of twenty five thirty eight uh, just before I turned fifty, and. Uh, I guess the reason is that, that what changed is that in the earlier period, um, it, things were very different. I, I mean, there was that was pre-computer, and uh, the literature was still kind of uh, primitive in, in the sense that uh, you would typically read annotations that, that were full of errors and. Uh, it, it just was hard to, to really understand what was the thinking of the great players. But by, by the, this is talking about like 1980, but by the, the mid-90s, things had, had changed, and uh, the standards of, of all, all the books, uh, and the, every, all the available material was much higher, and computers were starting to be useful, and uh, and I, I benefited from all that. I, I studied 
I basically felt like I learned so much about how to judge chess positions during that period. Like in 1990, I was, I was at my best tactically and probably in 1980, but I didn't understand chess very well in 1980. But by 1997, uh, maybe my tactics were slightly weaker, but I, by then I'd learned from so much reading and so, looking over games in the inform, informant with the, uh, how they were evaluating positions and everything. I, I just gradually learned, well, oh, this is, this is how, what's a good position. This is how you tell what's plus over equals. Eventually I, I got the idea. I caught, <laughs> I, I understood it. And, and by then I, I was a pretty good judge of positions. Hmm. So, so to the extent you had a secret sauce, it was uh, being an early adopter of chess computers. Um. Well, I'm I'm wondering how much that actually helped me before, before 1997. I mean, I was using chess computers from way back, but I don't know how much benefit they really were until maybe I, I guess they were. Yeah, I guess they were a significant benefit before 97. Yeah, that's probably true. Okay. And and how would you recommend for a typical club player, how would you recommend that they use, like incorporate engines? What is the proper role for engines for, say, like a, a 1600 player who's spending 10 hours a week on chess? Well, of course, I mean, the, one of the biggest points of having an engine is that if, if you don't have a private teacher yourself, the engine can review your games and show you what, what, where your mistakes were. That's, that's the, the, the number one thing. Um, aside from that, the computer can answer your questions about the openings. Like if, you, if, if you're trying to learn some opening and you wonder, but what if, that's, what if the guy plays that move? What do I do? And the computer will, will show you what, why that move is not in the book. If it's not in the book, it's probably a bad move and the computer will show you why. Yeah, well, it will show you the proper response. Some some people might struggle to know why. With a... well, that's true. That's true. You, 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 but you can play out variations, and and every time it plays a move that you don't understand, you can take it back, and uh, you know if you think another move makes more sense, you can try the alternate move and let the computer show you why that's bad. It, it's true that you have to be reasonably good player to to really fully benefit from a computer. I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly where the, I can't say, you know, if you're 1599, it's, right, yeah. it's useless and 1600, it's great. It's, it's, it's a gradual thing, but. Yeah. But and of the, course, yeah. And of course we have a wide range of, of rated of experience levels listening to this, but suffice to say the better you get, the more important engines become. Right. Um, okay. I mean that, so that's, that's pretty interesting. And, and how's your chest going currently? Well, of course, now I'm 72 years old. I don't I don't play as well as I did, and my rating has dropped. But I, I'm my USCF rating still in the 2300, so I haven't uh, I haven't totally fallen off the map. I'm, I'm the I think it's accurate to say that I'm the highest rated um, active player in the country over 70. I think there's one one player above me on the list, uh, Igor Foigel, but I think he only plays once a year, so. I don't know if you'd call him active. Yeah, that that's pretty impressive, obviously. So, so how has you, how has your game changed? Um, 
what like obviously over 2300 is still very good and i'm sure your openings are still pretty strong even though you, you as you mentioned earlier maybe you have you don't remember lines quite as well as you used to but to uh so which aspects of your game have changed over the years well, I certainly, uh, my opening probably got better and better from all this computer work and working on repertoire book. I, I would say that's that's gotten gotten stronger, but I, I think I make more tactical errors than I used to. I, I tend to have visualization problems. I, I just don't, you know, miss picture of position in my mind. I think the bishop is on that square and it's not there anymore, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that's, that's tends to happen more i think as you get older yeah I, but my, my judgment is still is still pretty good i would say good and i know you've done a fair amount of coaching over the years um with all of your work with this book and with komodo do you still have time to work with students or not at the moment i do but i uh not very much i, I yeah just a couple of students now okay yeah, the main reason I was asking is I was just curious what sort of approach you end up taking with them in terms of uh, how much you're doing on opening versus how much you're trying to help their game overall since, uh, I mean, you're, you're obviously qualified to do both. <laughs> right. Well, that, of course, is very uh, individual dependent I mean, and has a lot to do with their level. If, if they're not at a terribly high level, it's more important to just develop their general abilities as a chess player. Uh, once they get to, I don't know, something maybe maybe in the ballpark of 1,800 or so, it starts to pay more to to pay a lot more attention to opening at somewhere around that level. Gotcha. And do you, what are your favorite chess books? Do you still keep up with the literature um, these days? Well, I I, I do get uh, I don't. I don't buy every book that comes out, but I, I do get new books sometimes. Uh, and uh, especially when they, you know, when they have some uh, uh, relevance to me. I, I think you, uh, earlier we were mentioning the, that, that uh, Keep It Simple book. That was an example of a book that was particular interest to me because it was, there was some overlap with my my repertoire, and I wanted to compare the, what that book had to say with what I was going to say, and see uh, and make sure I didn't uh, either duplicate too much or or say something that would be, you know, has already been refuted. Right. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And do you did you have? Uh, I know that uh, Jeremy mentioned that you you had a coach as a kid who had a big impact on you. Um, well, I've had a couple of different coaches. He, he might've just been, was he referring to my first coach? Yes. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say that he had a big impact on me directly. I mean, he, he was, he, I only had a, uh, two sessions with him, but it was just a very memorable because my, this sound, this sounds like it can't even be true. I mean, you think I'm, I'm just making this up, but, uh, my first coach, his name was Harold Phillips, uh, actually played against Steinitz in 1894, <laughs> and he was the New York champion in 1895. Wow. It doesn't so even you, sound possible, does it? Yeah, so you're one degree of separation from, from Steinitz. That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> 
okay. And, and uh, while we're not, while we're on the topic of uh, <laughs> stories that Jeremy prepped me for, I feel like uh, I was going to save this for later, but I think now's the right time. He he said you had a good one about your first time meeting uh, uh, iconic American GM John Fedorowicz. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I, I don't know. If, I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to embarrass John. Uh, we're actually friends now, but uh, uh, John is a uh, guileless. I think. I think you could say anything about him, and he'll he'll take it the right way. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I was playing him in uh, the uh, as an international in the Marshall Chess Club in 1979. Which is where that was the tournament where I made my first I am norm actually, and uh, what happened is uh, we had a we had a very long game. Uh, he had white and he got an opening advantage, and he was nursing it for forever and ever. And I was struggling to try to save the draw. We went into an end game, and he was still playing for the win, and I was still playing for the draw, and it went on for. I don't know, six hours or something. It was some very long amount of time. Uh, and then finally, after all these hours of play, deep in the end game, uh, John overlooked something, some trick that I had. And and the res- result was that I actually won the game. I didn't just save the draw. Uh, and the, he was he was very, uh, <laughs> very upset about it. And we, we were... Uh, Using my uh, my chess set for the game, and he he grabbed one of the pawns and walked off and was and just started to walk out the chess club, and I I just said John, would you give me back my pawn, please? And, and he threw it at me as hard as he could. <laughs> and, but the, but the next day he he apologized and. and We've actually been friends ever since then. That's funny. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry. Did you say what year this was? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, 1979. 1979. So I'm going to try to do some quick math on how old John was then. How ashamed he should be. <laughs> so you would have been about 30, um, and he would have been already then. Yeah, he would have been uh, younger, right? Um, oh yeah, maybe a decade younger than I am, roughly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to sit here and I'm in awe and chase it down, but <laughs> suffice to say he was young. <laughs> suffice to say that he was younger. Um, do you have any other, I know that you've met so many chess legends over the years. Um, you played played so many as well. Do you, what, are, what are your other favorite chess uh, brushes with uh, legends? Well, I've had uh, things with, with uh, almost, <laughs> almost everybody. Uh, even... Uh, I have a couple of th- couple of things with Bobby Fischer actually, uh, not not so much on a personal scale, but uh, although I I, I did uh, have a game where he served, he was the adjudicator in a tournament I was in back then. In the old days, they had adjudications. And, of course, uh, yeah, yeah. And this was maybe I'm estimating 1964, roughly, uh, and I. I or maybe a little later, 65. Uh, I had a, uh, a game with uh, Jimmy Sherwin, international master, and um, it, it went to an end game, and I was down the exchange and looked like I was losing, but it wasn't resignable losing. 
and it came time to adjourn, and so they had they had Fisher come over and adjudicate, and he did a very good professional job, and he 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 tried to uh, uphold, you know, see if he could save my side against Sherwin's uh, analysis, and he, he couldn't, so he of course uh, adjudicated correctly for Sherwin. Uh, that was that was my most personal interaction with him, but. But I had some more interesting things later. That uh, for one thing, in the, in 1975, when he was supposed to uh, play Karpov, mm-hmm. uh, so there was, you know, Fisher w- was demanding certain conditions. He he said that uh, he, it has to be a match to ten wins, and that if it's a nine to nine tie, he keeps the title. So uh, the Fide and the Russians agreed to the 10 wins, but not to the 9-9 clause. So uh, Fisher wanted to get some kind of mathematical support for his trying to argue that he he wasn't making an unreasonable demand. Uh, So I got called in to, to do some mathematical analysis of his, his uh, proposal to compare it to the, to the previous way where the champion kept the title on a 12-12 tie, a score where when draws did count. Uh, but anyway, my conclusion was that Fisher was asking for more than the previous. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if as an American player you were encouraged to put your thumb on the scale at all in terms of how you're ruling. Well, I, I mean, I was just asked to... to Obviously, they they wanted it to come out in Fisher's favor, but I, I mean, I so I but I had to do a mathematical analysis. I and I concluded, you know, that Fisher was asking for more. But then they they then they asked someone else, uh, it was, uh, Charles Conley, I think he was an international master, to analyze that. He he made different assumptions. He went about it a different way, and he was able to come up with some justification for what yeah. Fisher was asking. But you know. It, Give, not. <laughs> give them the conclusion they wanted. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's funny. That's and then a- I had another thing with Fisher was that uh, this this never this didn't involve any personal interaction. But you probably know that you know everybody thinks of the increment as basically a Bobby Fisher invention and Bobby Fisher clock with the increment and all that. Uh, but. What actually it actually uh, what actually happened was that the the use of the increment for chess was actually my invention, uh, but I don't know that I I won't say that Fisher knew about that he, because I, I'll t- I can tell you the story there that uh, in 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 or around 1980 there was a chess clock on the market called the Micromate chess clock. It was, a, it was the first uh, real electronic chess clock. It, it, it was almost like a computer built into a clock. You could pr- program it to do almost anything you, that you could imagine for a chess clock. So nobody had ever even suggested the idea of using increment for chess. But I got I got this micromate clock, and then I fooled around with it a little bit, and I realized that it was possible to to set it to do what we, we now refer to as increment in chess. So I started using it uh, first in, 
uh, in for shogi play, uh, we used to, our, the shogi players were all using it, and then I started using it for some blitz chess events too. And I sent a, a letter to the manufacturer telling him, "Hey, you know what your clock can do?" And I explained the whole thing to him, and I uh, my name for it was accumulation, and he put that in the uh, in the manual for the next the next uh, time he. He put out a, uh, a you know, a, an update of the clock, uh, and he, he he put the accumulation game in there and gave me credit as the inventor. And this is exactly the same game that 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 Fisher, you know, claimed as the as his and and made a clock for, and his but his was later. Wow. I, he probably didn't know about it because the the Micromate clock wasn't very popular because it was too expensive not that many people had it and it didn't it didn't stay on the market very long after my thing came out but uh, so I'm, I'm not I'm not accusing Fisher of being dishonest or anything but uh, but I actually am the inventor and record of uh, of the increment for chefs rather than Bobby Fisher wow that's that's <laughs> interesting well it's good that that we can uh, help help get, give you credit where it's due um yeah and obviously uh increments and time delays are i mean I, I, now it seems inevitable that some, they would have come into use but i mean you know you and i both played without them for many years so um, yeah. welcome addition obviously um so one other chess related topic that I wanted to talk about a little bit, just because you're you've been sort of at the vanguard of discussing this. Um, when I interviewed I am Eric Kislik, I know that he's been a big adherent of uh, following the uh, point values, the the correct um, in air quotes, but not really in air quotes, the the um, true point values of chess pieces, um, which you allude. You know, you wrote a famous article for U.S. Chess uh, that Dan Heisman also mentioned when I interviewed him. Um, and uh, you mentioned it in the book, and of course, it's important for analyzing openings. Um, so, could could you tell our listeners a, a little bit about um, uh, where the theory stands in terms of how to properly evaluate uh, the pieces? Sure. Uh, okay. So, there's a couple of points there. Uh, it it makes it one a difference whether you just want to have a set of numbers to use for the whole game or if you want to go into more detail such as having like having a different set depending on whether the queens are on the board or off the board that sort of thing yeah which yeah you do mention in your book but i think for the sake of the conversation i think uh as as simplified as possible might be might be the way to go okay so uh the the um the system that i give in my book uh, is is with pawns defined as one uh, to count the minor pieces knight and bishop as three and a half rather than three, but with an extra half point if you have both your bishops. So two bishops are seven and a half, not seven. And then uh, rook is five and a quarter, and queen is ten. So on this scale. You'll you'll you get the answer the right answers to most decisions, uh, most exchange decisions. Now, regarding bishop versus knight, if it's on, if it's an unpaired bishop, the bishop is usually still a little better than the knight, but it's 
it's less than a quarter better, so it's not, uh, I don't put it, you know, I don't uh, put that into the numbers, but it, you should keep it in, in mind that other things being equal, even one bishop is better than a knight. Uh, obviously, depends on the position, of course. Mm-hmm. And but, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but the but those numbers are what they the consequence of those numbers. If you uh, some of the conclusions you get from that are that uh, the exchange, if it's a rook for a knight, uh, is worth a little bit under two pawns. So usually two, so you'd rather have two pawns in the exchange. It's, but that isn't really true if if you're in a deep end game. It's that's more, it's more of a, a statement for the earlier part of the game. And um, if, but the bishop pair being worth half a pawn means that if it, if you have the bishop pair and a pawn for the exchange, then you're only down a quarter of a pawn. Right. Which means that. You don't need a whole lot of excuse to give up the the exchange for for a pawn and the bishop there. You just you know if you if you get the you know a leading development or you give the guy guy an isolated pawn or you know any reasonable positional achievement could justify it. So that's one conclusion. Um, two two pieces for a rook. So so two knights for a rook is is uh, on average, about a one and a half pawn advantage. But there too, if you're deep in the end game, even even a rook and one pawn, it tends to actually be a little better than two knights. But it, if you're early in the game, the two knights can make up for a rook and two pawns. But on average, it's about one and a half pawns. But then again, if it's bishops, then uh, you know that. that well, actually, actually, I think I made a, a slight, a slight mistake there. Two knights is, is um, two, two knights is seven, but a rook, and, a rook and a pawn is six and a quarter. So it, I should have said it's a pawn, one and three, one and three quarter pawn. I, I made a little mistake there. That's on average, but with when it's two bishops, then then it's uh, actually rook and two pawns. Is still not quite equal to two bishops. It's a, it's another quarter pawn needed. So, two bishops is actually uh, as good as rook and two pawns plus a little positional compensation. Yeah. And th- then you can look at the queen. The queen queen versus rook knight and pawn uh, is a quarter pawn favorable. So other things being equal, you choose the queen side, but you don't need a whole lot of positional justification to choose the other side. But if it's if it's rook bishop and pawn and the bishop is part of a bishop pair, then then the side with the with the lesser pieces is is a quarter pawn ahead. Then it's the queen that needs to have a positional advantage to make it fair. Yeah, it's interesting because they are they're not huge differences from what we've grown up on, but they're they're meaningful for sure. Um, one question I had asked uh, Eric when he was talking about it a little bit um, is I, I teach a lot of uh, beginner level players and I know that a decent number of our listeners do as well. So do you have a sense of um, how to communicate that to kids, if at all? 
Well, uh, yeah, that's that's a good question, and what, of course, it depends somewhat on on the age of the kid, whether whether it's a kid who even understands fractions yet or not. Yeah. Uh, I I'm actually somewhat uh, somewhat inclined to say that they, if you if you really um, if you have a kid that you think can understand half. But but not you know you don't want to go into anything beyond halves. Then I if you then I would say to teach uh, one three and a half five and a half and ten and a half. Okay. That that scale works pretty well and doesn't involve any any math beyond half. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because for the kids I'm teaching, even the bishop like the concept of a bishop pair would you know probably fly over their head. But but the the values you just uh, laid out they can largely handle. I would right, say. but you you can still say the bishop pair is another half because it's, yeah, exactly, know, yeah, half. yeah. You can put it in terms, although of course in their games it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, pretty useless when you're hanging all your pieces. But <laughs> you know, that's that's true. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it, that is helpful. Thank you. Um, so just uh, one other topic. I, I feel like we should talk about shogi a little bit. I mean, it's amazing that you've you've accomplished so much and so many things. Um, so one listener in particular uh, had a few shogi questions. So friend of the podcast and supporter, Peter Newhall, for, the, for those who don't know, uh, people who donate on Patreon uh, to Perpetual Chess are able to find out guests and send in questions. And I gather that Peter has some interest in shogi as well from this question, from his questions. So Peter's first question is, how much carryover is there from chess to shogi and vice versa? I.e., is it easier for a chess FM to reach an analogous level at shogi or the other way around? Well, we have a fair amount of information about that. Um, it's, it's clear that shogi players can become decent chess players much more quickly than vice versa. I mean, they, some great shogi players from Japan have, have reached... Uh, uh, master level in chess very quickly uh but that doesn't mean that they became grandmaster they just do you do you know how quickly roughly well i i i have a very a funny story i could tell you about that okay what uh moriuchi was the uh has been many times the the meijin which is you can say world champion of shogi uh, he and Habu were, were uh, rivals trading the title back and forth many times, uh, like tw- roughly 20 years ago or so. Um, so at one point, well, ha- Habu took up chess and became reached IM level. I don't think he ever got the title, but he certainly was uh, reached IM level. Um, but Moriuchi took up chess, and but didn't, he didn't devote that much effort to it. And the, the reason I can say that with some confidence is this story. He came over to America to play in the American Open, his first chess tournament. Um, and uh, he, so he, he was playing there as an unrated. And not, I mean, the Japanese people knew who he was, but I think that most of the, the ordinary American chess players had just, just thought he was some random Japanese guy. Um, and so he, he did very well in the early round. He, he, he was, he got a good score and somewhere after a few rounds, he got paired with, uh, my friend, Jack Peters, international master, uh, 
some he, Peters was close to the GM title at one time. He was quite a strong player. Uh, and um, anyway, they play their game, and Moriuchi totally outplays Peters. And, wow. And uh, re, uh, I think he won a pawn maybe and, and reached it, finally got to a rook in game where it looked like a fairly routine in game uh, to win. Uh, but he, he played the ending very poorly and only drew. So after the game, and P Peters had no idea who he was at the time, so Peters, uh, you know, was really kind of uh, like annoyed or puzzled, like he maybe he almost thought that this guy was a cheater or something, because he he said, you know, how could how can you play that well and then play the rook ending <laughs> so, like so poorly? And Moriuchi said, well, I've never played a rook ending before. <laughs> Unbelievable! <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> So that so, uh, okay. So anyway, that answers that question. You know, he did, he obviously hadn't played much chess. So you know, I'm always much. so Larry. I'm always trying to hunt down people who've made like uh, impressive rating gains as adults who came to chess as an adult and uh, and and achieved a lot. We do a series called Adult Improvers where I interview such players. So it sounds like, I mean, it's sort of it might be like some sort of cheat code with the way his brain works. But it sounds like he might have been one of the the best examples if he took it up as an adult and wasn't FM strength or IM strength, uh, you know, without playing rook endings. <laughs> well, right. But it, it just shows that because of his ability to, you know, to, to be a world champion of, of Shogi, he, he almost as soon as he learned the rules of chess, he was already in probably 1900 or 2000 level. Man. Just be, just because of being able to calculate deep variations and, and uh, see check rates and see evaluate who's winning. I mean, he didn't have to know much about chess to, to reach that level, probably. Now, on the to go go the other way from from um, chess players who took up shogi. Uh, my experience was that it was a big help for me mm -hmm. because what happened with me was that it, in 1976. I gave up tournament chess for three years to concentrate on my career, uh, which, uh, but during that time, I'd learned shogi. So I figured I could play shogi as a hobby because that wasn't something that would take up a whole lot of my time the way chess tended to do. So I, I got really into shogi for that time period. And then in 1979, I made the decision to come back to chess again. So before, up through 76, I had never had any result that was even particularly close to an IM norm. I, I mean, I tried a few times, but I, I don't think I even came within one point before that. But after 1979, or starting, in, I should say, in 1979, when I came back to chess, it took me a, a few weeks to get back into it, I, and I, I did take a... I had a one-week training session with uh, Grandmaster Leonid Shemkovich to get myself back to knowing what current theory was like and so forth. But uh, after I did that, um, uh, I once once I started to actually play in in uh, norm tournaments, just uh, 
one after another. Every I knocked I knocked out three IM norms with with a point or point and a half to spare in every case without wow. without a break. I and, and I immediately got the IM title and and according to the chess metric site, I almost reached the world top one hundred. Hmm, that's so, interesting. And it probably can't be a coincidence that it was just after a tenth period of playing only shogi. So that uh, that ties into one of Peter's other questions, which is uh, is is learning shogi beneficial to one's chess or only in cases where one's burned out on chess? So, do you think that it was a renewed interest, um, or that you there was actually something tangible that you learned from shogi that you were able to apply? Uh, I think I think what it probably was was a change of, of how I of a thought process during the game because I, I think previously I was I, I was too focused on the result of the game like I would when I played chess I would be I, I, I was under the delusion that uh, you you had to constantly think about whether this game is going to end in a draw or, or somebody going to win and you that you know I had to play totally differently depending on whether I wanted to win or I wanted to draw uh, but with Shogi you don't have to think like that because there basically are no draws or you know almost no draws so I got used to the idea of just trying to find the best move and don't worry about the result and and that thinking is a much more hurt effective in chess than, than the other way of thinking. Huh. And all, the other factor is I think it, 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 Shogi is much less uh, materialistic, so I think it, it, I, got the, I, I got the way of thinking that it's, it's okay to give up a pawn for reasonable compensation, which I think prior to that I was probably just uh, way too materialistic. Hmm. Wow, those are really good insights. Uh, yeah, and certainly... Um... Uh, yeah, we're we're hardwired for those those issues, uh, being results oriented and being materialistic, as uh, Jonathan Rousen famously famously documented in the Seven Deadly Chess Sins. Um, and one last shogi related question from Peter, um, which was: uh, So, if Magnus took up, gave up chess, and decided to play just shogi, how strong do you think he could become? Well. Uh... <laughs> the closest thing to that is that his uh yeah his uh, trainer i know where this is going <laughs> yeah yeah peter peter Hein nielsen did yeah. did in fact take up shogi and, and i mean he didn't take it up at the expense of giving up chess but i mean he he's got taken it up in a you know, fairly serious way i i gather he's quite interested in it uh and i believe that he's i think he might have earned the four don rank which would uh, maybe be something like the expert rank in check in chess. Uh, I would say. So, uh, so I mean, I guess the short answer is, if if Magnus took if if now if at his present age if he if he switched to shogi, uh, well, for one thing, he'd be handicapped a little bit because he probably doesn't speak Japanese, and so he wouldn't have access to all the you know, the literature and the TV shows and the videos and everything. Um, Do you speak Japanese? I learned, I tried to learn enough to, to at least, you know, read, read some shogi books. I learned a little bit, but I, no, I can't say that I speak Japanese. Okay. 
Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine uh, being that good at chess and then uh, putting that much time into another game and, and seeing the results you did. It, it's, um, it's, it's quite impressive. Uh, so just out of curiosity, with, with Shogi in Japan, um, is it similar to chess in that the world-class players are, are almost always start pretty, like, very young? Yes, very similar. They, they, they usually turn pro by uh, somewhere around age 14 or 15. Man, okay. And there are there school programs, do you happen to know? Um. Well, I'm not sure if they're, you know, if it's after school or, or in the school, but they, they have a, um, a, a training. Well, if you want to become a shogi professional, they have this, uh, what they call the shorakai, where uh, kids play each other under, you know, strict supervised conditions and work their way up ranks. Uh, and if they can reach a certain level, they can turn pro. So, it's, it's possible for kids to to be training to become pros in the shorakai while still attending regular school too. Okay, and I'm putting you on the spot here, Larry. But is is there a book that sort of describes the shogi culture? I'm I mean, obviously, I'm sure there are listeners who either are already into the game or would consider getting into the game. But um, what like is there any book that describes the world of shogi? Well. Uh, I mean, or, I other, into, or other resource, of course. Yeah, I, I got into it back in the, in the mid seventies because uh, there was a British magazine called just Shogi, uh, which came out monthly. That was mostly translations from Japanese sources, and and that was my introduction to to Shogi culture. Now they only they stopped publishing, I think, in the early nineties. I think you can still get back issues of it, so that that there that is would be one possible source. Um, but there there are several books that um, you know that, that describe various aspects. There's a book by um, Tony Hosking, I think it's called The Art of Shogi. That might be that might be one that would be along the lines of what you're talking about. Okay. Thanks. Um, uh, and of course, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Larry, last topic, if you're up for it, this has been an absolute treasure trove. So I, I really, I really appreciate your, your answering all these questions. Um, so I was curious uh, about your experience as a chess parent. You had three kids and of course your son Raymond uh, has made it to IM. Um, so you've got to be one of the strongest uh, father-son chess combinations in uh in modern chess history at least so what was your experience like as a chess parent at what age did you introduce raymond to the game and uh how hard did you push him if if at all well it was kind of interesting um his his first uh, introduction to chess i mean i i taught him the rules when he was uh i guess five or something but he, he wasn't you know particularly into it but so when he when he was six years old um we were living in Florida at the time, and um, my uh, my friend uh, Grandmaster Arnold Denker, who was U.S. champion back in the 1940s, uh, happened to come by to give a simul, and it just happened to be a couple blocks away from where we lived. So I had Ray play in the simul. I mean, it was it was for kids, so it, it was okay. 
So that he actually he actually had a, a official game in a cyber with his grandmaster when he was six years old. Wow. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, he so he I got him in you know I got him playing in kids tournaments. Uh, he he wasn't particularly outstanding at that point. Um, he did he did win the uh, the county. Um, primary school championship uh, in third grade. Uh, uh, it was, uh, I remember it came down to a, it was a disputed tiebreak situation <laughs> with another player who uh, eventually became an IM. But anyway, uh, but he, he, he didn't really take to it too much. He, he did, his, his rating didn't, uh, he, he, st he stagnated something like 900. And um, I, I did. I thought it was. I thought he just was not really that interested in it. And not much happened in, until he reached the age of twelve. And then he, he got real interested again on his own. And was it wasn't because I pushed him into it. He started to really study chess and 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 play as many events as I could take him to. And he made just about the fastest progress of, of anyone I've ever heard of. He, 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 went, he went from 900 to master in three years. <laughs> wow. And what so, was, so what was he doing? <laughs> what was his secret? Just, uh, <laughs> just spending a lot of time studying chess. Were you, <laughs> were you analyzing games with him a lot and stuff or just giving him books or all of the above? Uh, I mean, I certainly did you know, work with him some, but my recollection is he did most of it on his own. Huh. That's impressive. Wonder what he did. <laughs> um, wow. And your other kids, you introduced it, but I guess they just weren't that into it. Yeah. My, I have two daughters, but neither of them showed a big interest in it. Huh? Okay. All right. Well, Larry, I think we've hit all the topics on my outline. Um, obviously I could, <laughs> you know, there's, there's many more I could ask you, but is there anything else you wanted to say before we, uh, we let you go? Well, um, I mean, I guess, I guess we covered most, uh, most everything. I, I guess I, I just, uh, would like to say that, uh, I hope other chess players can have the, have the attitude that, that I do that, uh, you don't have to uh, you don't have to give up just because you're getting older and your you know your results might be dropping. But if you if, you know if you work at it and you, and you assuming you don't have some you know some dementia or something like that, but uh, it's you, you can still play a pretty good chess game even in your seventies. You don't you don't have to you know you can fight against the <laughs> against the aging process. <laughs> Wow. That's my, uh, that's, that's what I want to say. <laughs> well, that's great closing words. I mean, that that's, it's inspiring. I mean, it's great to see that, I mean, you've had so many experiences and done so much in the world and to see you still out there, uh, you know, giving people, um, giving people, you know, testing the youngsters and sharing your stories is incredible. Um, so I don't know, I saw you do have a chess.com profile, um, is there anywhere else for people to keep up with stuff you're doing or um, should they just uh, keep an eye on new in chess and Komodo and uh, so on and so forth. New in chess publishing that is. 
Yeah, well, we do have a uh, Komodo chess uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, okay. And, um, I'm, I might, some people have, have, you know, suggested that I do something more in the, uh, uh, in the, the new uh, social right. network work field to uh, popularize the developments with Komodo and everything, so maybe I... Maybe I might get into that, but uh, yeah, that I would haven't. be interesting. Yeah, to if you could stream just how how someone with your experience level. I mean, obviously the programming is going to go over, you know, ninety eight percent of your the chess audience's head, mine included. But just how you interface with engines might be interesting if you um, ever are looking for even more stuff to do. Um, yeah, and and I guess uh, I hope we're going to be able to continue to have. Uh, um, handicap events between computers and, and humans. I mean, I find the the idea of, of computers playing against top strong human chess players interesting, and people gave up on it once it became obvious that the computers were better than the world champion. But I think I've kind of uh, shown the way to how to to keep it going. That uh, handicap chess makes makes it so that it's always possible to have an interesting battle between uh, the, the top humans and the top computers. Yeah, I agree. There's, that, could be, that could be really interesting to see, see what unfolds. Um, so just in closing, a reminder to listeners, the book's already on Forward Chess, uh, coming soon in print. Although, as Christoph Selecki and I discussed last week, um, online is, is quite helpful for these opening books, in my personal opinion. Um, but wait for the print book if you like. But there's a treasure trove of potential avenues of exploration within uh, Larry's repertoire book. So thank you for taking the time to write it from all your professional responsibilities, Larry. And, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy, but also to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether via word of mouth, positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. All of that stuff helps more people find out about the show. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. You guys have enabled me to continuously work to improve and now expand the Perpetual Chess podcast offering. So for that, I am forever grateful. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice's Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clef, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, where you've been hiding, Moonmaster, you haven't asked a question in a while. Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I would also like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, 
Brett Howard, Lynn Bryan, Mullis Chad, Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, or possibly not I am elect. Either way, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt of Chessable, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, JJ Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paula Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Peter Sodi, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrancouge, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network.